Okay, uh, so I'll begin by saying that, uh, sadly, in much of today's churches, there really isn't much discussion on God's law. In fact, the word law is rarely mentioned in many churches today, probably because of their fear of legalism. Or uh, maybe some of these churches have a bad understanding of grace and the gospel. However, the Bible speaks of the law, not only in the Old Testament, but it also speaks of the law even in the New Testament. And so the law is a very important uh, point in the Bible. And God's law is relevant even to the doctrine of salvation. It's relevant to New Testament theology. And it's also relevant to the Christian life. Uh, Joel Beakey and Mark Jones, they have a book uh, entitled Puritan Theology. And it said something that I, I thought was very interesting. Uh, it says this, Much of the Protestant Reformation and the Puritan movement revolved around the question of God's law. And when you think about it, uh, if you think about uh, the key doctrines of Scripture or the key themes in Scripture, um, for example, you think about sin. Uh, sin is the transgression of the law. Uh, also, when you think about the death of Christ, the death of Christ is the satisfaction of the law. And uh, justification is the verdict of the law. And then when you think about our sanctification, what is our sanctification? Sanctification is uh, our fulfillment of the law, if you will. This is uh, as we uh, grow in our sanctifications, we are getting uh, conformed into the image of Christ and we're becoming holy and we're, we're becoming more in line with God's law. So to say that the law is some Old Testament thing and it has no place for New Testament believers is simply not true. And so today we're going to talk about this subject of God's law and how it relates to the Christian life. And so let's look at chapter 19 of the Confession. And we'll start with paragraph 1. Can I get someone to read paragraph 1? Thank you. And God gave Adam a law written in his heart that required his full obedience. Also one command in particular, naming that he must not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By Adam and all his posterity were bound to personal, complete, exact, perpetual obedience. God's promise life upon the fulfilling and threaten the death upon the breach of the law and due to Adam the power and ability to keep his law. Thank you. So the confession begins by saying God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart. Now I'm not going to lie, I really do not like the way that was translated, the original version, I think, reads it uh, in a more helpful way. And it says, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on Adam's heart. Uh, and I think the older version is more helpful, especially with the words universal obedience. Now what this tells us is that God, in creation, gave to Adam a law, in which he wrote in his heart, and this law 
was an all-encompassing universal law which informed him how to perfectly and completely obey God in every area of morality. And this is known as the moral law of God. That, that's what was written in Adam's heart. Now the use of the word universal here uh, speaks first of the kind of law that it is, as well as, as well as its obligation to be kept by all men everywhere. And it also contrasts the upcoming word that you'll see in that same line in the paragraph, uh, that word specific. And so you have the word universal, and then you have uh, specific. And there are two different kinds of laws there. But specifically speaking uh, about the universal law, this law was written in Adam's heart. And the specific law is a law that's not necessarily written in Adam's heart, but was simply a law that would have been told to him by God. For example, that law to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That would be more of a specific law, an external law. The common, uh, the common name of that type of law is a positive law. But uh, what do we mean when we say that there was a law that was written on Adam's heart? Well, it simply means that this law was a law that was part of his very nature. It was inherent to his very being. And you can see more of that uh, in uh, chapters 4 and also chapter 6, which speaks about how uh, Adam was created in the image of God. But we see this concept in Romans 2, 14 through 15. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And see, that's the, that's the key thing there. Uh, it goes on to say, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so, so the point of this passage is to say that even those of other nations who were not Israel, who Israel, uh, God gave them the commandments written in stone, those that were not Israel, people of other nations, would still be judged by the moral law because the scripture tells us that the moral law was written in the heart of man. And so even though Israel was given the Ten Commandments written in stone at some point in the future, in creation, God had already written this moral law in his heart. Now, uh, moving on in the narrative of, of creation, God also gave Adam a specific precept not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and we see this in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so that precept there is not the, moral, not the moral law that was written in his heart. This is a specific law that was, it was given to him separately because it was unique and it was revealed by God to Adam externally and not the same way as 
the ones that were written in his heart. This is, like I said, this is often called positive law. And it also had uh, specific terms and conditions attached to it. Uh, we read uh, in Genesis where it says, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, but the difference between a positive law like this and the moral law that was written in his heart is, uh, for example, if God had not revealed this precept, Adam would not have inherently known not to eat of this one tree uh, from all the others. And in this way we see the distinction, again, between the law of universal obedience, which is the moral law written in man's heart, and a specific precept or a positive law. But nonetheless, regardless of the distinctions, perfect obedience was still required to everything God had commanded to Adam in order for Adam to keep fellowship with God and to receive that reward of life which was promised to him if he would have obeyed. Now, the confession goes on to state that by these, God obligated him and all his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. And here we see that both Adam and his descendants were bound to the law of universal obedience, this moral law. But in principle, they were both also bound to that specific law, that uh, positive law as well. Since Adam is the federal head of all mankind, and Adam's failure to keep the uh, positive law, that specific precept, was also his children's failure. So when Adam failed his guilt, from his disobedience to that specific precept, was imputed to all his descendants as well. God bound Adam and all his posterity to personal and total and exact and perpetual obedience. And what does this mean? Well, personal, uh, we would see that Adam and Eve and, and each and every person born out from them are individually obligated to all aspects of the moral law given to Adam. And in Adam, also to his posterity. And, and, and what, do, what do we mean by total? Well, total, um, we see that each person is required to obey, to obey every single uh, aspect of the law perfectly. Um, entire or exact, we see the word exact there in, in the paragraph. Well, what does it mean? Uh, what is it alluding to? It's, it's, it's alluding to the fact that each person is, re to, is required to obey every single aspect entirely, which means they have to obey every law perfectly. This was their obligation. And then finally, uh, we have this perpetual obedience that was necessary. Uh, and this is to say that the moral law is perpetual. It, it is never abolished. And therefore, obedience is required not for a period of time in history, not, uh, not for a specific region uh, or, or nation. This is a, a universal law that is required obedience forever. God promised life if Adam fulfilled it and threatened death if he broke it. 
and he gave Adam the power and ability to keep it. And the reward of life was promised to Adam if he fulfilled both that moral law that was natural to him and that particular precept that was uh, given to him in the garden. And again, for a discussion on the reward of life, you can see uh, chapter 7 on God's covenant. Uh, specifically, paragraph 1, it speaks about the reward of life and what that was. There was also the threatening of death. And this was if the particular precept was breached or was violated. We see this in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. God had not only created Adam in holiness and righteousness, but he also endued Adam with a power and ability to keep the law of universal obedience, the moral law. And he also gave him the ability to keep the particular precept, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so if God had created Adam with a law that he was not empowered to carry out, God's goodness would be undermined, as well as Adam's responsibility for that sin. But given that God did empower Adam, and yet he still sinned, only compounds to Adam's guilt. Right? Adam could not say the devil made me do it because Adam had the power to obey even in the face of temptation and yet he did not. He went against what was natural to him. Okay, moving along. Let's, uh, let's have someone read paragraph 2. Thank you. The same law that was first written in man's heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after Okay, so in the first sentence, it reads, The same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. And so what we get from this sentence is that even after Adam fell, God's moral law still continued to be the universal standard of righteousness. In other words, the law that God put in man's heart is actually one and the same with God's holy character. And therefore, just because Adam fell, it doesn't mean that God will do away with his standard of righteousness. So regardless if man has steered away from God's moral law, his moral law continues till this day to be what is expected from man. Now, the paragraph goes on to say that this law was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and was written in two tables. The first four commandments contain our duty to God and the other six, our duty to humanity. And so this law, which was written in man's heart at creation, was later codified on Mount Sinai in two tablets. And it's important that I mention that, that man, after the fall, had begun to disregard the moral law of God. And this was because they uh, faced uh, some corruption. Uh, they were uh, feeling the 
separation from God, the moment that sin entered the world and entered in them. Uh, Their original nature was broken and fallen, and this is why corruption was found in every generation. But when you fast forward to Exodus, we later on see that God was graciously pleased to give a new and complete copy of this moral law that was already written in man's heart. And these commandments were given to Moses on two tables of stone. And we see this in Exodus 32, uh, 15 through 16, uh, where it says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tables of the testimony in his hand. Tables that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tables. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you would know that there were more laws given to Moses for Israel than just the ten. However, only the ten were engraved on these tablets by God himself. And we see this in Exodus 34, 28. Uh, where it says, So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So why only ten were written on the tablets and not the rest? Well, this is where we make that distinction. This is where we find that distinction between the moral laws of God and any other ceremonial law or judicial law of God that was given to Israel. And if you, if you look at them carefully, these other laws were really only an expression of the moral laws, the Ten Commandments. And they were, uh, they were an expression of these moral laws in a way that was contextualized in the form of regulations for Israel to live as a nation and a theocratic society. But even those laws could be summarized in these Ten Commandments. Now, regarding these Ten Commandments, the Confession states that uh, they consist of two categories, right? The, the, the first four contained our duty towards God, and the other six was our duty to man. And by this, we understand that the moral law uh, does not merely consist on how we deal with God, but also how we deal with others. Uh, you can find these Ten Commandments listed in Deuteronomy 10, verses 6 through 21, and I'll list them here for you. You can see here. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number four, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And then five, 
Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Number six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And so here, you can see that the first four laws are our duty towards God. And the last six are our duty towards man. Okay, moving along, let's look at paragraph 3. Can someone read that? Besides the moral law, God also gave to the people religion, ceremonial laws, which served as types of things to come. They fell into two main groups. In one group, there were rites, partly related to worship, which prefigured Christ, his graces, his actions, sufferings, and blessings, occurred for us. Thank you. So the first sentence says, In addition to this law, usually called the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typological ordinances. So when the confession states, in addition to this law, this law refers to the one moral law, right? The law given to Adam and then eventually codified in the Ten Commandments. So in addition to those, God was pleased to give Israel ceremonial laws. And these ceremonial laws were not given to all mankind to obey, but only to Israel. And the confession continues by saying, it says, containing several typological ordinances. In some ways, these concern worship by prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. In other ways, they reveal various instructions about moral duties. So the ceremonial laws that are, are being spoken about here are by nature uh, typological meaning that they are types. And a type in Scripture is something that has its own significance in its own right, and yet points towards something, usually something in the future, that has a greater significance. It is like it, but it's not it, right? It is not as important as what it is pointing to. And so we read in Colossians 2.17 how types were to be understood. It says, these are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ.
And so ordinances are things formally, formally prescribed by God to be carried out regularly. And some of these ordinances, or actually uh, all of those ordinances, specifically uh, the ones that were uh, in the ceremonial laws, were given to Israel to do, and they had to obey it nonetheless. However, they still pointed to uh, greater uh, truths or uh, a greater reality. Now, there are two kinds of ceremonial laws which contain uh, typological ordinances. Uh, one of those is uh, those dealing with worship. And uh, the second would be those uh, commandments that were instructions for Israel um, that would uh, inform them uh, how they ought to do specific things. So on the one hand, uh, there were some ordinances that dealt with the worship service and then other, others that were uh, just instructions. Of the ceremonial laws that deal with worship, they prefigured Christ. They prefigured Christ's graces, his actions, his sufferings, and even the benefits. And of the ceremonial laws that were just instructions, these basically typified higher moral duties. Uh, notice in Hebrews 10.1, I'm going to read this for you here. Notice what it says here and how it describes some of these ceremonial laws. It says here, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And so this passage is telling us that those ceremonial laws given to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant were ordinances that prefigured Christ. That's basically saying that they suggest the greater reality to come, uh, to be found in Christ himself, right? And these also prefigure Christ's graces and actions and sufferings. They prefigure his benefits as well. Now, we, who have both the Old and the New Testament, we have a clearer interpretation of these types and shadows. Uh, because we understand how they relate to Christ and what he, what he did in his life and in his ministry. And we can see how these types and shadows uh, were ceremonial laws that merely pointed to Christ and his life and his ministry. Now, at the time when these laws were given to Israel, God still required these ceremonies from Israel. Um, so it's not to take away from the importance of the covenant that God had with Israel and, and, and how God uh, required them to, to practice these ceremonial laws. Now, as I mentioned before, there are some typological ordinances that were instructions of moral duties for Israel. The instructions are typological in nature, and they point to a higher moral duty. And I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by that. For example, Israel was called to keep certain festivals and feasts, right? And they were called to observe dietary laws. 
And as much as it served its temporal purposes, namely to keep them distinct from the world, but, but also to preserve them as a nation, uh, because the Messiah was predicted to come from their line. And so these commands were still only types and shadows that pointed to a higher spiritual moral duty. And I'm going to explain how. Um, but first I want to say it's important to understand the distinctions between typological instruction and that which is actually moral. Uh, in other words, we do not want to find morality in things that are not actually moral. For example, the use of unleavened bread typified impurity, right? But it is not morally impure itself, right? Uncleanness typified moral filth. But certain animals are not literally morally filthy. Uh, someone, for example, who is ceremonially unclean is not morally filthy because of the thing that made them unclean, such as touching a dead corpse or contracting leprosy. Paul understood how these uh, ceremonial uh, laws, these instructions, uh, typified real moral truths. And Paul understood uh, this typical use of these instructions. Um, and in fact, he used them as a shorthand way to communicate about actual moral and pure things. And you'll notice how he does that in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. I'm going to read that here. It says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, when the New Testament speaks about God abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, you see this in Ephesians 2, he's not referring to the abolition of morality, right? The moral laws. He's referring specifically to the ceremonial aspects of the law, as well as Israel's civil laws or judicial laws, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Now, since ceremonial laws are merely types pointing to a greater substance, we have to conclude that they only had a temporal function. Because once the substance of what they represented arrives, they no longer need to function in the life of those in Christ. Right? And this is why the Confession states, it states this, that since all these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the new order arrived, they are now abolished and taken away by Jesus Christ. As a true Messiah and the only lawgiver, he was empowered by the Father to do this. Uh, this phrase, the new order, or, or the, original, uh, the original wording uh, in, in our confession, uh, says the time of reformation, this concept of, of of a new order or a new reformation coming 
which is pointing to the coming of Christ and how he's going to fulfill it, or fulfill the ceremonial laws, this concept, we get it from Scripture. Uh, and I'm going to show you the passage. Uh, it's Hebrews 9, 8 through 10. Look at it here. <clears throat> and it says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And this time of reformation refers to the time that Christ would come and by his work fulfill the types and the foreshadows of the ceremonial law. And by fulfilling them, he basically uh, did away with them. And again, since the substance of these ceremonial laws belong to Christ, as we read in Colossians 2.17, he is the rightful and only one who, who would be able to bring about the fulfillment of them and also the abolition of, of these laws. The confession goes on to state that Jesus Christ was furnished with power from the Father and, and he was furnished with power from the Father for that end. And this reformation uh, was a big deal in that Christ abrogated and took away the ceremonial law because he himself became the ceremonial fulfillment on behalf of all who are in him. So we praise God that, that uh, in Christ those things are fulfilled and they're not required for the believer. Moving on, let's look at paragraph 4. Can I get someone to read that? So now, as we read in this paragraph, in addition to the moral law and the ceremonial law, uh, Israel was given judicial laws. And you can see these judicial laws in Exodus chapter 21 uh, through about chapter 22. Um, now, it's not the complete uh, uh, list of the judicial laws, but it, it's a good example if you want to see what these judicial laws were. Now, these judicial laws cover a range of issues, many applicable once Israel was in, in the land that was given to them. It served the purpose um, of the nation of Israel as a nation, and the confession states that the judicial laws ceased at the time their nation ended. Now these laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. And so when Israel ceased to be a nation, 
So also the obligation to the nation's judicial laws ceased. Okay? Now, the, <clears throat> the proof text that is provided by the Westminster Divines, when you read this in the Westminster Confession, uh, the proof texts are Genesis 49, 10, which actually goes with 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14. And we see in Genesis 49, 10 that Jacob prophesied while blessing his son Judah uh, something that I, I think is very important uh, as it relates to this uh, concept of the, the judicial laws ending with the nation also ending. And so let, let's go ahead and read Genesis 49 through 10. I'll go ahead and read it. <clears throat> the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all or of the peoples. So much could be said about this passage, but the heart of it is that Jacob prophesied that the dominion of Judah will be superseded by that of Christ. Now this hints that uh, that the nature of Israel as a nation was temporal. Um, the it, it hints the it hints at the temporary nature of Israel as a nation. Uh, with a land and with these civil laws. And so once Israel, as such, ceased to be a particular vehicle for God's saving purposes, these laws expired. <clears throat> uh, we'll recall that most of these judicial laws were given by God on, on Sinai, uh, many for use once they arrived in the land, that was their immediate purpose. But once that situation no longer existed, they no longer had the same purpose and use. <clears throat> These judicial laws had to be temporal, and specifically for Israel at the time, because further on in the New Testament, we receive new instruction to submit to whatever government we find ourselves under. Uh, now, most of y'all have read this passage before, 1 Peter 2, 13-14, where it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. <clears throat> and so we see that this is a command from the Apostle Peter. But this is a command for every Christian, Jew or Gentile. Therefore, the identity of the believer is no longer found in the judicial laws given to Israel, which only would have been fitting for Israel as a nation in their land. And therefore, the judicial laws of Israel are not universal for all peoples and all nations. Since Peter tells believers, even Jewish believers, to submit to non-Israeli judicial laws in whatever government system that they happen to be living under. Now with that said, notice that this paragraph here in the Confession, ends with the statement, only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. I like what the original wording in the Confession says. It says, only their general equity has moral use, or being of moral use. 
Now what this means is that even though the judicial laws expired when Israel as a nation expired, this means that the judicial laws, along with every law that God revealed to Moses, is really just an extension or expression of the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. And so even though a, judi a, a judicial law is abolished, there was still a moral goal that it served. So I'll give you an example of one of these uh, judicial laws. Uh, one of the judicial laws for Israel was that if they were to build a house, they were to set up a railing on their roof. And you see this in Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. Uh, apparently, people in that time occupied roofs. <laughs> so people hung out up there. And so God had a law for Israel as a nation. Uh, and required a railing to protect someone from possibly falling off and making the owners of the house liable of blood uh, of, of someone who fell off and got killed. Now, in our context, roofs are not typically occupied or even set up to be occupied. Uh, and therefore, the law doesn't really transfer over equally, right? The judicial law doesn't transfer to our context. However, the confession rightly tells us that even though Israel's judicial laws ceased with Israel, the general equity of the law continues to have moral value. So, uh, looking at a, a judicial law like the one that I just mentioned, what would be the general equity of that law? Well, the general equity is the protection and the sanctity of life. Right? It's simply an expression of, of commandment number six, which is, you shall not murder. Right? That's what that law uh, protected. That was the moral expression of it. And so we see that these civil laws really were never intended, back then or even now, for other nations. They were, they were created for Israel to obey. However, the, the moral equity within these laws can be applied to everyone in the world because the moral law is for everyone in the world and it never ceases. So again, with that said, these judicial laws given by God on Mount Sinai still have moral uses. And in these various civil laws, we find morality. That is, uh, in, in, in these uh, kinds of laws, it, it's a... Uh, it's moral obligation to our neighbor, right? And these moral laws can be summed up in the Ten Commandments. And so we see that even though the ceremonial law ceases and the judicial law ceases, the moral aspects of it don't cease. And again, they can be summed up in what we have in the Ten Commandments. Uh, for the sake of time, uh, we're going to have to end here. Uh, but here's what I'll do. I'm going to make I'm going to make the rest of this teaching available on audio through our website. Uh, so since we didn't get to finish the last three paragraphs, I'll go ahead and record uh, the rest of the teaching and have it posted at our website. So if you're interested in the rest of it, uh, again, feel free to listen to the audio. Uh, I'll label it as part two. Of, uh, of the law of God. 
And also remember that at the end of the series, we're going to be having a Q&A. So if you have any questions about anything I said here or anything that we've talked about throughout our uh, teaching on the confession, uh, please be sure to write down your question and put them in that green box back there. Okay? All right, so let me go ahead and uh, close out with prayer. Uh, Our Father, we are grateful that you have codified your law. And since we so easily stray into our own inventions of what is right and wrong, we, we thank you that you have revealed that again to us. Uh, we so easily forget your ways. You've given to us the scripture to remind us and to help us to examine ourselves. And so, Father, help us to meditate on your law day and night. We desire to walk in them. And again, when we fall short, I pray that it would serve as a sweet reminder of the grace that you have towards us in, in Christ Jesus. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.